spend some time uh, in prayer together. Lord God, just as we have sung, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are our Lord and our Savior. And Lord God, in Exodus 15, at the place called Marah, you made the bitter water sweet, and you proclaimed yourself Yahweh Rapha, our healer. First, you healed your people from their own grumbling against your leading. And then you promised a special care and healing for us as your people. And this compassion of yours is celebrated throughout the scriptures and the Psalms and in the New Testament, and especially seeing you, Lord Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, who knows all of our infirmities. And we come this morning to lift up before you those whom we know and love well who are ill and are suffering today. And first of all, we want to lift up before you those that we think of in chronic conditions. And Lord God, each of us in our own minds will be lifting up to you their names before you right now. Lord God, there are so many. And we ask that you as our healer would heal and that you would strongly encourage people suffering in this way. We also now want to lift up to you those who are shut in and unable to actually join us in person. And we offer up their names in petition right now. And again, Lord God, there are so many that we know and love in this situation, and we pray that you would strengthen them this morning, that you would give them a growing hope in their souls. We also want to lift up to you this morning those who have lost loved ones, and we give before you their names now as well. And Lord, there are so many people that we know in this situation because we live in a world that is filled with pain and suffering and that we all eventually must die. But those of us in Christ know that we have a peace that is eternal. And we pray that this peace that passes all understanding would belong to the families of those who've lost loved ones. And finally, Lord, we want to lift up to you those who have new and urgent and special concerns Uh, for healing, and we lift up their names now before you as well. Lord God, there are so many people in this situation too, people that many of us perhaps don't even know, and we ask your healing hand to be upon them. I pray for so many that might need to be drawn to salvation and drawn perhaps to growth in their walk with you. And we ask that you would supply the grace that's needed in their lives for this. And we remember as well Psalm 103, where you declare about yourself that you are a God who redeems our lives from the pits and crowns us with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies us with good so that our youth and our energy is renewed like the eagles. And we praise you that you do these things for us. And we often, we pray also for our offering this morning. It was 
such a joyful part of our worship to be able to give to you what you've given to us. And we ask that you would be pleased with what we offer and that you would magnify your glory through it. That is our deepest desire of all. And we pray this morning for your word as we look into it in a moment here. We pray for godliness to be the result because we know that as your scriptures declare, godliness is great gain. And we pray this morning that your word would do that and work in us as your people. And we pray all these things for Jesus to be magnified amongst us here at Calvary Church. Amen. Well, thank you for praying with me. We're going to look in Luke chapter 9 this morning and continuing our study there. It's a very interesting passage in Luke chapter 9. I wonder if you've thought, ever thought about a couple questions that I think about often. One is, how do you know if a Christian is a great Christian? How do you know if they're a powerful Christian? I mean, many people talk about this question. I mean, it's a good question. And then how do you know, sort of related, how do you know if a church is a great church, a powerful church? That's also a good question to ask. You know, there are a lot of ideas out there on how to measure this, a lot of theories, a lot of visions on how you would do this and approaches to understand what makes a great church or a great Christian. And each of us has probably picked up an assortment of ideas throughout our Christian life. Um, or maybe you're a new Christian or a young Christian, and you're still trying to figure this out. What indicators would you put on the list? I mean, surely you have some things in mind, and what tools are you going to actually use to measure them? What is, how do you measure a power level and the greatness level of a Christian or a church? Now, hopefully you actually do have these goals for yourself and for us as, our, as, as a church. We want to be a powerful and a great church, but of course, in the right way. And some more questions to think about that go a little bit deeper, and that is how confident are you in trusting your own evaluations and your own judgments on this whole matter? How able do you believe that you are to be able to distinguish between worldly approaches and spiritual approaches and values and strategies? I mean, surely some items are really easy, but what about the more subtle items and the, and the subtleties of the human soul? Maybe even your own soul. Well, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 37, and it's printed for you in your worship folder as well if you don't have a Bible with you. But let's observe Jesus and hopefully rise to true spiritual power and greatness. We're going to read the episodes as they unfold. And we're going to learn that true spiritual power and true spiritual greatness, they come from servanthood. This is what Jesus taught us repeatedly and what he modeled for us in his ministry. And there are two stark contrasts in our passage in Luke chapter 9 today between Jesus, the Lord of all, and his disciples. And so in the first section in verses 37 to 45, we see Jesus' power contrasted with the disciples' impotence. And then in the second section in verses 46 to 50, we see Jesus as one who serves other people. He's other-serving, but we see the disciples, and their motivation is to be self-serving. Now, where we are in Luke is, this is Luke's last story, 
in a major section in his gospel of the Galilean ministry of Jesus that began back in chapter 4 and finishes in our section today. A very large section. It contains 13 miracles in there. This is the last one we're going to see today, and it contains his second passion prediction. Luke's great finish to this section promises some great lessons, and then next we're going to be traveling along with Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. So if you look in your Bibles to the next verse in nine, chapter 9, verse 51, we shift our focus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then the gospel focuses more and more upon his cross. And in considering our present passage, we sort of have to back up because in chapter 9, verses 18 to 36, in that section right before where we are today, there's a lot revealed. The identity of Jesus and his destiny, it plays a prominent position because there's the great confession of Peter that you are the Christ, and and there's the prediction of Jesus' cross. The next section in verse 23 and following, the meaning of discipleship is put forward, that it's about self-denial. And then finally, the glory of the transfiguration teaches us that we're to listen to Jesus in verse 35. And then we come to our present text, and may we listen to him then again here and follow him and attain to true spiritual power and true spiritual greatness, things we should desire, and things that need to be done according to Jesus. So let's take a look at this first stark contrast between Jesus' power and his disciples' impotence. And so there's a situation that is brewing here in verse 37, and we read in verse 37 to 43, on the next day after the transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and hardly leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirits and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Well, it's the morning after the transfiguration, we looked at last week, that the transfiguration is when Jesus' appearance was changed and his veiled glory was unveiled and Peter, James, and John, the three inner disciples, got to see Jesus' unveiled glory, a preview of heaven. And then he comes down and he meets his popular following, it's the other nine of the twelve, as well as a broader group of disciples, and this large, large crowd is gathered to meet him and we're provided a much fuller picture in the in the context of what's going on in the gospel according to Mark, and we read there, and when they came back to the disciples, meaning the rest, they saw a large crowd around them, and some scribes were arguing with the disciples, and immediately when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him, and he asked them, what are you discussing? Well, there's a problem regarding a father and his only son, and the father cries out from the crowd and begs Jesus to heal his son, Because his disciples couldn't do it when he begged them to heal him. It's a very desperate situation. And this is what the large crowd is about and what the lively discussion is about. And so if we step back for a moment, let's pull in some other details from the other gospel accounts. In Matthew and Mark, we learn about this boy's condition. It's quite severe. 
The boy, according to Matthew, suffered from epilepsy from quite a young age and added to this a demon has taken advantage of the situation and made it even worse. The demon will seize the boy, cause him to scream, and make him unable to talk in any intelligible manner. The demon will throw him into convulsions, causing him to foam at the mouth, grind his teeth, become stiff, and sometimes he'll end up in the fire or in the water. Obviously, the demon is attempting to kill this child. The demon will maul him in some manner, causing serious bruisings on his body. And when such fits are over, the demon hardly leaves him before he returns to do it again. It's a regular tormenting of this child by this demon. Interestingly, I have a lot of some friends in the Arunachal Pradesh region of India, and they have encountered very similar experiences to what is in this story. And again, with earlier examples, we see the intensity of this satanic hatred of human beings, and especially at the time of the incarnation of the Son of God, because they really hate him, because he's going to redeem humanity. Now, while Peter, James, and John are on the mountain with Jesus, Remember what they're doing up there? They're failing. That's what they're doing up there. And then we come down the mountain, and what are the nine doing? Failing. Miserably. These disciples lacked faith and power because they were acting in a self-serving manner regarding this exorcism case, and that's brought out in Matthew and Mark explicitly. These are the reasons they are unable, lack power, they can't expel the demon, they can't heal the young boy. And so Jesus, in verse 40, rebukes the father, rebukes the crowd by his words, and even his own disciples, his words reveal who he is and what they missed, and his weariness at sinful humanity. I mean, he's been with them for 30 years in this incarnate situation, and there's been a whole year of ministry so far where he sees the fickleness of their faith and the faith of people. Remember, Jesus is the one who's doing us a favor in coming from heaven to earth, It's not us in believing in him that does him a favor. And so soon Jesus is going to complete his mission and he's going to return to his heavenly glory as the Redeemer with his Father. Now you see coming down from the transfiguration, it's, it's, it's like living the incarnation all over again. Descending back into the world of sin and unbelief and illness and demons In a sense, it was reliving the whole humiliation all over again. But that's what the Son of God came to deal with, and so he will return and finish up his work by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised to life for our justification. Well, Jesus commands the Father just to bring his Son to him. While the Father and his boy approach, the demon takes one last shot at it. And we get to see the intensity of the demonic hatred of this child and his evil, the evil of the demon, we get to see the sovereign power of Jesus, the Son of God, and at his word and at his rebuke, the demon flees. The boy's healed and returned to wholeness to his father. The result, of course, is especially recorded by Luke. I mean, he always uses the same word. And everyone was amazed, right? The crowd was amazed, and that's the point for us as well. They're amazed at the greatness, the majesty, your translation may say, of God in Jesus Christ. And surely we see this as an outflow of how verse 27 ended. You know, there are some standing here. We're not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. You see, this uh, is a great story. And the people are all talking about what happened. You know, this is a great story to tell your friends 
You know how many people don't know this story? I mean, we always think of the big story to tell people, the story about the cross and the resurrection. But what about all these little stories? They're gospel opportunities, especially when you run into situations that are pretty similar to what you read. It's like, oh, that reminds me of a story in the Bible. And then tell them this story. Tell them the story about Jesus' power. And then we get to the teaching part starting right after this. So everyone's discussing and marveling what's going on, and verse 43 continues, at everything Jesus was doing, not just this particular thing. And Jesus says to his disciples, disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So everyone is amazed, of course. They're all discussing what he's doing, and all his previous ministry. And then he speaks privately to his 12 disciples, and he tells them again about his cross and his resurrection. Right back in verse 22 and 23, if you look back, he's Luke summarizing it here. Jesus also adds a new detail. I don't know if you picked it up. Depends on your translation if you're going to see it. But he would be handed over, or he would be betrayed. And, of course, it's going to be carried out by Judas. But his name isn't revealed here yet. But it would be soon. And make sure you notice Jesus' words. He says, let these words sink into your ears. We should realize also that Jesus is telling his disciples here about his cross and resurrection. I mean, that's the true greatness of God in him, not the present works in themselves that the crowd's discussing eagerly. All our marveling at Jesus has to lead us to the greatest marvel of all, what he would do on the cross and in his resurrection. That's the greatest thing to marvel at. Furthermore, the disciples would do really well to remember these words because it's going to help them get through those events when Jesus is actually delivered up. The true spiritual power they needed was here. In understanding the purpose of the cross of Christ and believing in it, and that's where they should be thinking about at the moment. But again, observe the disciples. They're failing to understand, not listening to what they're supposed to be doing. Verse 35, listen to, my, listen to him, and they don't. They don't understand the suffering servant of God from the book of Isaiah, the prophet. They don't seem to understand that the great glorious figure, the Son of Man in the book of Daniel, would also be the same person, that he would be suffering. These are concepts that is in Scripture, concepts that are in Scripture. Jesus has been telling them about them very clearly, and he's been living them out. But we're also told that at the same time, God is keeping their minds from fully understanding what's going on, only to reveal it to them in time, in his timing. But perhaps even worse here in the storyline is they're afraid to ask him about the, question, about the saying. They understand the words, I mean, no doubt. I mean, they're obvious words. They mean Jesus is going to die. But they don't want to know the how, they don't want to know the why, they don't want to know the details at this point. And had they asked, who knows what Jesus would have told them, and they could have come to understand. And so as we get set up for this closing part of Jesus' Galilean ministry that Luke is presenting to us, we see the contrast between Jesus' great power displayed here and the disciples and their impotence. And what makes the difference? Well, if you look at verse 41, it's because... They lack faith and they lack prayer along the lines of believing in what God's will is for Jesus Christ. See, their focus is off, and that will become very clear in a moment. 
And they're not focusing on Jesus and his glory, but their own. You see, the true greatness of God in Christ is in the work of the cross. It's not in doing of the miracles in themselves. Have you let this sink into your ears? In other words, are you listening carefully to Jesus as we go through this passage? I mean, how about asking further questions about the cross? How about searching the scriptures to understand it more fully? I mean, many of us know a whole lot, but you know there's a whole lot more to know. I hope you know this, and if you think you're done, um, talk to me. I can give you some suggestions for more things to read. But some of us probably don't know a whole lot. Some of us maybe here just know a little bit, and I would encourage you to keep on learning as you trust in the cross for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, and for justification that you be declared righteous before God. And true spiritual power, we learn here, is going to come from a deep and growing understanding and believing in the purposes of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what the disciples missed out on. And their smallness of understanding and and their little faith is they didn't listen. They didn't learn God's will very well. That's what the disciples missed on because they were attempting to do works of faith in their own power. They were attempting to do works of faith according to their own desires, not according to God's by prayer. They were self-centered, and this will be very obvious in a moment. The true spiritual power, as we'll see today, comes from servanthood. That's where it comes from. That's why Jesus succeeded uh, where his disciples failed, because he was serving God and serving people. The disciples were interested in serving themselves. Jesus served God's purposes in full knowledge and submission to the Father's will. Jesus had faith with understanding, we could say, but his disciples didn't have either one. And so then the second stark contrast that comes into play is Jesus is serving other people while the disciples are serving themselves. There are two rivalries that take place in this next section. There's a rivalry amongst the twelve and there's a rivalry outside of the twelve. The contrast is between Jesus' self-sacrifice that's just mentioned for the second time in verse 44, and the disciples self-serving doing a ministry, attaining ranking among themselves. So now you see we're going to see more of what their true motives are in all of that previous episode. And so rivalry one amongst the 12, verse 46. So an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. So it's not long after this episode with the demon-possessed epileptic that this situation arises. Now, it's ironic when we start making the comparisons, right? So, Every one of the 12 disciples just got done failing miserably, and now they decide it's the time to discuss who's the greatest. They should be discussing who's the greatest failure. That's what they should be discussing. So why would they be thinking such things like this? Well, there are some things that Jesus has been doing in his ministry recently that might bring out jealousies among people. You see, because there were already special groups that Jesus had made. He doesn't treat everybody equally. And so there's the 12. They're picked. And then he even picks three 
among the 12 that he spends more time with than the rest. That's one reason. Another reason is, you know, each of the 12 have been involved in a lot of different works, and they weren't always in the same place at the same time doing ministry. You know, Jesus sends them out to do things, and they experience different things. So they probably think their experience, oh, that's better than his experience. And then most recently, I mean, Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain of transfiguration. And it's Peter who made that first great confession of Jesus' messiahship, and he's predicted by Jesus to be the rock of the church. And then, of course, they're all men. Men who had given up everything to follow Jesus and to gain his glory. Well, you know, we might be tempted to look down on this group of nasty disciples, consumed with their jealous infighting. But don't we do the same? I mean, surely you've seen it, how ugly we can get at times in our churches. Of course, not here at Calvary. We'll talk about this on the street. You've been there. You know how those people are. Yeah. But, you know, maybe we should look a little more carefully at ourselves. I mean, think about it. We look at our gifts and our calling, and then we look at other people's gifts and their calling, and we like to figure out, well, who's more useful to God? As if our gifts and calling actually came from ourselves. And if our standards were actually God's standards. I mean, we, what we do is we look at who gets recognized and who doesn't get recognized and, and for what. And, and so we can elevate ourselves and demote other people. And we plot in our churches to assert ourselves and our ministries as if our ministry is the most important ministry in the church. It's the same thing these men are doing. We jockey for position and honor and voice in the church, and we make these constant comparisons. And maybe we think it's hidden or it's okay. But we really do reveal our jealousies. I mean, people see way more than we realize. And God sees it all, of course. You see, these disciples, they don't understand greatness. But neither do we often, if we're honest. And Jesus answers them, and he, and he teaches us all. And so after traveling a little bit farther to a home in Capernaum, he brings up this private discussion along the way. And Mark, in his gospel, tells us that when Jesus asked a question about what they were discussing, they were silent. Why? Because they're guilty. They know why. Like when you ask your child, did you do this? Same thing. Quiet. He knows their hearts, like the hearts of all men, and we've read about this in Luke before. And Jesus then proceeds with this illustration about what greatness is, and, and he puts this child. He acts out a, a parable. It's a, it's a prophetic way of acting. And he takes a young child, probably under 12, and puts him at his side in the midst of everyone to observe. Now, Jesus used children a lot for illustrations on different, for different concepts. And so you have to know what's going on in the context, you realize. But, you know, Jesus didn't really use children for the you know, cute sentimental reasons that we like to attribute so often. I missed the point. So here, there are actually two things that Jesus is illustrating in this one example. So we'll do our best to understand them. So the child actually represents two different things in, our, in, the, in what Jesus is saying. First of all, the child doesn't have status in society. And uh, often a child is even an illustration of maybe even unbelievers. And it's, they're seen as people that are a waste of time, especially for important people. So important people don't spend time with unimportant people. 
And so that's one thing that they represent. Second of all, the child also illustrates what humble service is, servitude, uh, uh, like Jesus himself, and what the disciples should really be like. They should be like a child. And so Jesus proceeds to make these two statements here, one on receiving a child and one on being the least. And they can be quite difficult to grasp, but we'll try our best here. And you're going to have to just go think more on them yourself. So first of all, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So receiving a child or somebody who, what the child represents here, receiving an unimportant person in Jesus' name, which means for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' glory, that's why, is receiving really Jesus' purposes and ultimately the purposes of God the Father in sending God the Son. So this means that ministering to unimportant people is actually very important. Uh, it shows an understanding of Jesus and his purpose. You know, Jesus didn't come for important people. He came for unimportant people, right? Read the first book of Corinthians. That's how it begins. And so it extends to his mission. And receiving unimportant people and spending time with them, that is, shows an understanding of why the Father sent the Son and the Son sends us. We should give attention to those considered unimportant, even literal children, definitely. Weak people, troubled people, old people, poor people, young people, slow Christians. I mean, all sorts of unimportant people, it seems. We should reach out for the sake of Jesus and not, not hold ourselves back somehow thinking we're going to preserve our status that we think we have. It shows an understanding of spiritual greatness as opposed to worldly greatness when we minister to the least. Second of all, true spiritual greatness is related to having an attitude of a servant, being, being the least, being like a child. Matthew and Mark make this point even more so than Luke. This means putting one's self and needs last, like a child would often have to do, especially in this society at this time. And so what we're supposed to see ourselves as relatively unimportant compared to other Christians. In other words, we're supposed to be the child in the story. That's the point of the illustration. That's how we're supposed to see ourselves. And we should also then be very careful how we see other Christians. There, are no such, there is no such thing as a super important Christian. But because of our weakness, we seem to think there are such people. And remember that they too, no matter what gifts God's given them, they're still children in this illustration. That's how God sees them. And you know what? If they're really, truly great Christians, that's how they're going to see themselves anyway. They're not going to promote themselves because that wouldn't be great, according to Jesus. So Jesus is saying two main things here by way of correction of his disciples. They have to change the way they see themselves and the way they see each other and the way they evaluate uh, one another as Christians, because we're all children in this story, and greatness is yet to be seen. And we also have to assume the position of being a servant like Jesus. That's true greatness. I mean, he's the greatest of all, and he served us all. Well, that's rivalry one, so they're arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest, but should be the greatest failure of all. But Jesus teaches them about what it really means to be great, but then there's rivalry too, and there's something that's going on outside. And we read then in verse 49 and 50, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him 
because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So, in light of what we just read in verses 46 through 48, the disciples are saying, okay, yes, but what about this situation? What about this situation, Jesus? And now, likely it took a, little, a place a little bit later, not immediately afterwards, but Luke wants to see us to see the connection nonetheless here, perhaps. So we have a strange exorcist. That's who this guy is, a strange exorcist. And he's unnamed, and he's uses, using Jesus' name to go out and perform exorcisms, to cast out demons. And it seems to be working quite well for him. Now, we should note that as we read along in Luke, the irony is so thick. I mean, the nine disciples of Jesus couldn't cast out a demon. And then you've got some guy who's not even part of the group casting out more than one demon by just using Jesus' name. Very interesting. So the 12 keep trying to stop this man because he's not part of the 12. Probably not even part of the larger group. The 12 are being very self-centered and jealous here. It comes out. They're sectarians. They ought to be rejoicing that demons are being cast out in Jesus' name. That's a wonderful thing because Jesus gets the glory and demons get beat up. That's wonderful. They should be excited about that. So Jesus points out to his disciples that this man, this strange exorcist, is actually not against them. In reality, he might actually, if you go talk to him, you know, he might be interested in joining you. He's a potential disciple. And perhaps he's trying to follow Jesus the best he knows how, but he needs some help and maybe you guys could help him. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. You know, we need a lot of relationships in the Christian world, a lot of partnerships to accomplish the mission. Calvary Church can't do it all globally or locally. And just in case you're not aware, Calvary Church is not the best church in town. It's not. Calvary Church is not the best church in the area. So I hope you don't think that way because that's very arrogant. And it would be a denial of the lesson that we're just being taught of what our attitude should be. You see, we can't afford to be exclusivists in following toward other fellow Christians and especially not in front of Jesus, who's watching. Rather, we have to appreciate and cooperate with one another as true brothers and sisters in the Lord and evangelical Christians. You know, however we want to define our group and their group, as long as we all believe in Jesus, truly, we're all one group. So you see, we should share the heart and hope of Moses in Numbers chapter 11. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people would be prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. We should heed the encouragement of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
we should adopt the partnership vision of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. We should possess the confidence of the Apostle Paul in God and in the gospel, even in regard to people who are ministering with improper motives. Philippians 1. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they're going to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You see, Jesus was other-serving, but the disciples were self-serving. From that greatness debate that they had, we learned that we must have a servant attitude like Jesus toward one another and live this out in humility amongst ourselves as children. And then from the uh, strange exorcist story, we have to learn to have a partnership attitude toward other Christians and from other groups and live that out in humility because we're all children. The applications are endless for each of us to make in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what are you thinking right now? What are you feeling right now? I mean, maybe that's the Holy Spirit impressing something upon you right now for you to go and pray and deal with? Hope so. Well, hopefully these attitudes are are modeled here at Calvary Church. That's what we want to model. We talk about it all the time, and that's wonderful. We want to grow in that, and we all need encouragement because all of us are going to fail, and all of us are going to need to be encouraged to continue to live out our faith that way. See, true spiritual greatness comes from servanthood. That's why Jesus succeeded and his disciples failed. Jesus served God's purposes and served God's purposes toward other people, and he humbly ministered to them. That's why he was called great. His disciples, they hadn't learned this yet. So what instructive contrasts have we seen between Jesus and his disciples here? So Jesus understood his purpose, while his disciples did not, and as a result, Jesus wielded great spiritual power, and his disciples were impotent. Jesus, the most important man ever, most important man ever, served other people with humility, while his disciples served themselves and tried to figure out who's better than somebody else, whose ministry is better than somebody else's. As a result, Jesus would unite his church, but the disciples would seek to divide it up. Well, the disciples failed at this time, and we've done a good job recounting their embarrassment this morning. But they would eventually learn, actually, and they would grow to the point that they themselves would become shining examples to us, just like Jesus was to the church. So go ahead and read the rest of the New Testament and discover what they have to say to you. They made the transition from what we read about in here to true greatness and true power. You know, we continually need to apply these words back from the transfiguration in verse 35 as well, where the Father says, listen to him, listen to Jesus. 
It's especially true in the areas of spiritual power and spiritual greatness and spiritual service. Our tendency, you know, is to be, is the tendency of the disciples at the time, is to follow our natural instincts and to assume that they're correct. To assume that what we think is like, oh, God must have told me that. We're too quick to do that, to just assume that the way we think and the way we feel is godly. But we're often very, very mistaken. You see, we can assume that enough and we have enough faith and, and we have true spiritual power, but then a situation comes up and we realize we don't have it. We don't have what we need. And we can assume that we know enough and we can evaluate other people's value and even our own value and we can somehow come up with a chart of who's the greatest when actually we don't have a clue. So rather, we have to listen to Jesus and watch him in action. In fact, we can read carefully and prayerfully meditate on passages like this one. In fact, we have four whole gospel accounts that we can do that with, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we should pray for servanthood and pray for awareness of our own weaknesses and our propensities. So where is the power? And where is the greatness to be found? Hopefully, we've come to know better and sense the reality that it really comes from servanthood. And hopefully, we've come to appreciate this spiritual truth more and be motivated by it even more because we all know and we've all experienced that there are those moments in ministry where we can sense we've lost spiritual power and greatness that we couldn't do what was needed to be done and we knew we weren't God's man or woman at the moment like we should have been or could have been and I think that when we reflect on such examples from our own lives we discover at those times that we were actually really seeking to serve ourselves and our own purposes rather than God's and God's in other people's lives. But Jesus was the servant of God and with great distinction. That's his title, right? Especially from the prophet Isaiah, the servant. And he would bring salvation from sin by his own self-sacrifice, the greatest service rendered of all time. And so from Isaiah chapter 53 specifically, we refer to Jesus as the suffering servant of God. And if you're not familiar with that chapter in the Bible, I encourage you to read Isaiah 53, because in there you'll find the gospel and salvation. Well, as the servant who would become the Savior, the Son of God, this man, he is the Son of God, he would be serving the Father's purposes and serving other people. That's what it means to be a servant, a servant of God. Scripturally, it has two meanings. It means you serve God and his purposes, and it means you serve other people for God's purposes. And the service wasn't only for our salvation, but it was also for our emulation. We're supposed to be modeling our lives after Jesus and complete the picture that Isaiah sketched out. Because as we studied those servant songs as well, you know, we're supposed to add to it the servanthood of the people of God. We're to act like the servant. That was part of those prophecies. And it's part of the message that Luke is bringing to our attention this morning as well. And since we see it true in Jesus, it's going to be true in us as well, that true spiritual power and true spiritual greatness, it's going to come from servanthood. That's where it comes from. So let me pray for us this morning. Oh Lord Jesus, we praise you as the eternal great servant of God, the eternal Son of God in glory who willingly came and took upon yourself our humanity, being the perfect one, dying in our place for our sins and earning a righteousness that we couldn't earn so that it could be accredited to our account and we could be declared justified. We ask this morning that you would give us wisdom 
so that we can know better and sense the reality that power and greatness come from servanthood, that we could actually experience it so we would have our own stories to tell, stories to tell ourselves and to tell others about how servanthood works, and that we would appreciate this truth more and more and that Calvary Church would become a truly powerful church and a truly spiritually great church according to Scripture, and that those things would be true of us individually as well, that we would be those kinds of people and that others would be able to see it and rejoice and give praise to you. And we pray all these things for Jesus' glory. Amen.